Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome back to a Phoenix Concussion Recovery Podcast and Concussion Talk Podcast. Today we have uh, Megan, who's a researcher at York University Toronto Rehab, and Katie, who I got the pleasure of doing a podcast with recently. Um, She's a PhD researcher at Wilfrid Laurier. Uh, and I believe as an American, I said that correctly. And I'm, uh, I work at a major healthcare network in uh, Utah, and I work with Phoenix Concussion Recovery. My name is Lauren Zayax, and we are so grateful to Nick to bring us all together today to talk about women in concussions. Um, we want to also thank the sponsor of the podcast. So Head Check Health, um, Head Check Health bridges the gaps in concussion care through simple, powerful technology. Join organizations like the Canadian Football League, Trek Factory Racing, the Canadian Junior Hockey League, Eastern Washington University, and Volleyball Canada, who rely on HeadCheck to improve communication and optimize care. Visit HeadCheckHealth.com for more. All right, so we got all that out of the way, and now we're going to talk about uh, girls in concussion, women in concussion, and, and what that actually means. So would one of you guys like to get started? Megan, let's have you talk about. So you're the uh, you're the specialist of women in concussion on the call. So let's have you get started on giving us. Um, why don't you tell us some of just the overview? What's the difference we think occurs between boys and girls when it comes to sports related concussion? Um. Okay. Well, thank you first of all for uh, the <laughs> lovely introduction. Um. In a word, we don't really know what the difference is between uh, males and females, boys and girls. There are a few hypotheses, um, and I think the most compelling one has to do, well, I shouldn't say, I'm slightly biased toward one over the others, but I think it's probably a combination of all of them. Um, I think that the fact that um, women and men, boys and girls, have uh, different hormone profiles um, has a lot to do with brain health and brain function and then consequently recovery after injury. Um, so that's that's one of the hypotheses. Um, the other consideration is that uh, biomechanically men and women are different. Um, and when we're talking about an impact injury, um, biomechanics and body size and muscle mass may make a difference uh, in how people are injured and, and then possibly down the line how they recover. Um, and then the, the other probably part of the other piece of this puzzle likely is that um, boys and girls are socialized differently from uh, a very early age in our culture. 
And when we look at how concussion is assessed right now, we focus a lot on symptoms. So, you know, um, you, concussions are diagnosed in, in large part, not entirely, but, but the symptoms that you report play a big part in that. And then the symptoms that you report uh, help determine recovery. And when you look at the research, women are reporting more symptoms and more severe symptoms than men. Um, and there is some thought in the research that that may partly be due to how we socialize little girls and little boys to talk about how they're feeling. So it's it's probably a combination of all three things. I'm biased toward the hormonal hypothesis because that's something that I'm looking at in my own research. Um, but I think it, it's probably a, um, a, a one piece of a larger puzzle. So I think that's actually a great way we should just break this thing down. Why don't we talk about those three hypotheses um, and then and kind of talk about what we're seeing. So what I think is the most interesting, so, so as, a, as a context, I primarily work with patients who are more than three weeks out. And so I think I'm a little bit skewed in how I feel about some of these numbers because I don't really see those spontaneous recovery patients as much. And so for me, what's been fascinating as we've been doing more, more and more research is that I'm at almost 50-50 for male-female patients in my population. I think our latest study that we're trying to publish was 42% male. And so I, it's kind of weird. It feels almost foreign to me when I hear the, these facts and figures that women do so much, uh, so they get better so much more slowly and, and they struggle more because that's not what I see. But then you go and you do baseline testing at a high school and it's immediately apparent to me that it is it has to be some sort of social issue as well because you'll go to do a VOMS, which is that eye screen. So for the listeners, you're looking at their eye tracking and the way their head is moving and you're asking about symptoms and we're looking for changes after a possible concussion. And the boys are always, no, no, no headache, no dizzy, no, 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 no. And then, and then you get the girls team comes in and the girls are like, oh, well, you know, I'm a little dehydrated today. Maybe I'll put a two out of 10 for the headache. And they're immediately so much more forthcoming and they're not injured. And so it's like a reality check for me, the difference between the two genders when I'm dealing with the healthy people uh, versus the protracted recovery people. So I didn't know if you guys had any opinions about that at all. Um, on my end of things, like I would say, I definitely see more women with persistent symptoms in clinic. Um, I'm not really in clinic with primarily just concussion right now. So I probably don't have the best population to pull from, but, um, even just like my area of focus is more on like the vestibular sensory integration and balance control. And typically it's funny cause you say like how the girls are reporting, you know, more symptoms in high school and tend to be socialized that way. However, like they, in that kind of development, there's actually a more ahead of boys in that sense of like in most studies, girls perform better on balance testing and, you know, they're performing the same on like the VOMs when really like those uh, normative values come out. And so like boys tend to get, you know, they kind of mature and become more coordinated a little bit later in their adolescence. So their balance improves a little bit later and they sort of level out into like collegiate age. And, but then you, you see like bigger discrepancies post-concussion in some senses of, uh, like those symptoms of vestibular headaches, um, poor balance control are sort of more evident in females. And it's shown that way in a lot of the more recent research, like the dual task gate recovery, um, even like in the VOMs and different things that have been associated with those balance measures. 
And uh, you wonder if it is relating, like I kind of, again, with Megan, I'm kind of like biased to the hormonal aspect because even for me, like on a normal cycle, like I'll get migraine associated vertigo. And that's again, more like common in females. Um, and uh, like, it's just those kinds of things that are related to hormonal functioning that I think maybe exacerbate some of these symptoms in females that we see uh, more oftenly reported. So that's my end of it. So what's interesting is, so the research is showing that the girls perform better on the test. They have better balance. So then could you argue that maybe the biomechanical piece isn't really as much of a factor because in, in reality, the girls should be less likely to have an injury if their reaction time is better and their balance is better. Or do you think because girls develop faster and they have these higher level skill sets, when there is a deficit, they notice the deficit more than maybe a boy who's not as neurologically developed, balance isn't as good, um, maturity isn't as strong. And so they don't see that discrepancy after a concussion that a higher level, a higher functioning person might notice that big drop in, in their um, level of function. Do you think one of those two is more at play or do you think that's just coincidental? Um, I think it's probably more coincidental. Like I don't think like it's usually younger um, adolescents like between the ages of kind of like 12 to 14 like beyond that and that's probably again before they really get into contact sports so it's less less commonly reported I guess and um, or more likely to be injured in like when you get into those advanced ages where they're playing you know contact football contact hockey in high school um, so it's more like the kind of like that pubescent age early pubescence like when their balance is different I would say like um Beyond that, like the measures that we're using, like it's not necessarily like a conscious thing that they can be aware of that they know it's different. Um, it's coming down to those objective measures where we're, you know, using like center of pressure data and stuff that they're not going to notice the difference of when someone's balance is better than the other. Um, but I think I think it's balance is more affected by like their somatic symptoms um, rather than like just the balance control itself. Like it's more related to whether they're experiencing migraines, experiencing dizziness, um, set light sensitivity, all those things that other sensory integration issues, um, and especially like a lot of Megan's work with the busy environments and lots of different stimuli. Um, and uh, I think it's just the higher incidence of, uh, like I said, like more of the, the actual uh, experienced symptoms rather than like knowing that maybe they're more coordinated like I don't I don't think they would necessarily be aware of that yeah that's interesting I mean so if you look at it from um if you were to go to neuropsych testing I think I think it was what I was what I was trying to get at was so people who are baseline more intelligent or baseline able to multitask and they feel like they have all these deficits after their head injury right so I could share my own experience for instance um so I felt like I was having speech well I was having speech deficits and organizational deficits and, and things of that nature and when I went to my neuropsych testing and I did my couple hours of testing what they sat me down and said was, you know, you feel like you're performing different, whether or not I, I didn't really associate myself as a highly intelligent person at the time. It became more apparent to me after I, I lost it, what I had before. Um, but it, it was interesting to me because that ceiling effect of the test. So I guess what I was trying to say was like, if you, 
not necessarily that you know you're more coordinated than somebody else, but do you feel like, or do you think maybe the girls notice some of these deficits more? Because just like in neuropsych testing, there's that ceiling effect or they didn't know what they were before. And we don't have anything that can really grasp that missing aspect for them to sort of validate how they're feeling. I mean, they're obviously feeling like they're not performing at the same level. They're feeling like their balance is impacted or they're dizzy. And so could it be that we're not capturing and reflecting properly um, how they feel compared to how they felt before? Yeah, I get where you're coming from on that. Um, That's something I think like you kind of, it it can be kind of suggestive too. Like if you test balance and you know, like they're being watched, it's almost like there's a bit of a white coat thing too when they're like, I'm being tested and I tell people to stand still all the time on a force plate and they end up sweating a lot more probably than if I just was like, don't like just stand on this force plate. Um, And so it's when you know you're being observed and stuff too. And then, you know, when you're being asked questions, you start to think, okay, like sometimes I think it gets into the patient's head a little bit when we get really focused in on symptoms and, you know, constantly asking to monitor it because then they're like so aware of it that they start to almost think about it more than they probably did before. And they may have had some symptoms like that daily kind of on the regular, but they weren't as conscious of it because they weren't asked all the time about it. Yeah. Um, Like, and even things like anxiety and stuff like kids experience that. But then when you start asking them about it, they're going to start reporting it more. And then it's like, well, maybe they had something like that before, but like really it wasn't, they just never really understood what it was um, and really what that is. So then all of a sudden now they're aware of it and they're maybe reporting more or maybe they just experience it more and it could almost be a psychological component as well in there. And then the anxiety piece is a great piece. So Megan, um, as far as the, the hormone portion mm-hmm. of this, do are they finding any connection? Is what makes women a little more prone to anxiety or more prone to talking about their anxiety at all becoming correlated to what we're seeing in the after effects of concussion? Are they looking at that at all? There's not a ton of research out there um, on the, the, like correlating the the socialization to the each symptom report. Um, In, in terms of hormones, what we're, what it, this is all like very early stage research because for a long, long time, we either weren't studying women or we weren't studying them separately from men. Like so much of the early concussion research was male football players. So, you know, the women just weren't included. And it took a longer time to first start including women and then recognize that um, things are different between the sexes. And and one of the uh, studies that is out there looked at when where women are in their menstrual cycle at the time that they get that they sustain their concussion. And uh, there is a significant difference in recovery time and symptom reports um, for for women in one phase versus the other. And I can't remember off the top of my head, but um, the the luteal phase of the cycle versus the proliferative phase, there's a a significant difference. And then that traces back to, there's, there's a number of different things that could be uh, happening, but one of them is there's there's pretty significant hormone differences between those two uh, times, and right now that's kind of as far as it has gotten. We we have nobody's resolved, you know, whether it's high levels of progesterone are they pro- are high levels of progesterone protective or do they leave you at higher risk of um, prolonged symptoms? Like that's the level of we don't know. Um, so it's it's 
pretty, um, there's, there's a lot more questions than clear answers right now. Yeah, that makes sense. I got to tell you, uh, I was very <laughs> judgmental. I didn't finish reading that study because as a feminist, I was like, oh, here they go again. They want to link everything to our menstrual cycles, just lock us up in a cage for, you know, four to 10 days a month kind of thing. And, and so yeah. I, didn't, I didn't finish. I was like, they didn't find enough for me to read that one. That's a bunch of garbage. <laughs> no offense think, to the researchers. I'm sure they worked really hard on that. <laughs> I think I had it. I pulled that study up actually, and I was looking at it. And you're right. The, it was the luteal phase. Was it the luteal phase? Yeah. Um, yeah, where like the estrogen and progesterone actually are reduced, and so they say that's the lack of neuroprotective mechanism there, but the, that are, is mediated by those hormones. So um, there's like antioxidant effects and levels of excitotoxicity, and those things are all kind of affected when. Um, the hormones levels are lower and then they it's kind of a double-edged sword because then they say like beyond the concussion now like you sort of have to track menstrual cycles after the injury to actually look at how they're if they're if they're one of those people falling into that persistent prolonged mm -hmm. symptoms then you might actually start having to look at their cycle and when their symptoms are um recurring and i had a conversation actually with a patient this morning who's she's she's a a higher I'd say like concussion plus like she's got other things going on too that were from a trauma but um we had this great discussion about you know maybe like these kind of waves of symptom recurrence maybe we should start looking at when they occur and the timing of them and perhaps it is linked to your like hormonal regulation in your cycle and it's it's kind of tough because it's a couple of years out so we can't really pin mm -hmm. back to her mechanism of injury but now it's like you know these kind of like it could drive all this autonomic kind of manifestation that we're seeing. Because if you think about how it manifests, even just with PMS and, you know, that kind of way we normally are, <laughs> that you think of if you're already having symptoms day to day and then it comes around at that time and it just gets a bit amplified and perhaps the migraine, the little bit of vertigo, dizziness, um, you know, and the autonomic stuff with like stress, cortisol levels maybe just are just a little more responsive at that time and it, it kind of was interesting to me I thought if something really hasn't been tapped into like you said that's all, as far as this research goes um and I think it would be really really interesting um like I'm really interested to see what Megan's new stuff comes out with um but uh I think it's a start and like you said it's kind of like oh man again like looking at this but it is what makes us unique and I think it is something to look into it's worth investigating further I um I had a patient who uh, was concussed when she was pregnant. She was like four or six weeks pregnant when she sustained her concussion. And um, I treated her through the pregnancy and symptoms were, you know, we had, a, she had a really hard time and she was getting back to work and her symptoms were um, really like problematic on a day-to-day -day basis. And um, then she had the baby and started breastfeeding and, felt like far and away a whole lot better than she had before. And, and I, we taught, we had this conversation and I said, you know, probably like there's a whole lot of hormone change that happens there. That probably has something to do with it, but there is no research. Like nobody wants to touch pregnant women with concussion and do, and if you could <laughs> find enough to make a study, like and then good luck getting an FDA approval or, uh, or IRB approval. <laughs> ethics, like that's, nobody wants to touch no that. Chance. No, no. Chance. You know, Nick had a good question. So Nick yeah. just posted up, um, 
and I think you guys might have seen it, or I don't know how Skype works, but uh, <laughs> so uh, how does the birth control pill um, affect things? And I, I would have to assume that maybe it stabilizes the hormones a little bit, but if we don't know how the system works in general, we probably have no idea. Um, and, and then, of course, that's a man asking that question, right? So there's a difference between an estrogen heavy and a progesterone heavy, and yeah. there's non-chemical inducing copper types of birth control. And <laughs> so, so there that... was a study done uh, a few years ago, and they looked at women. Um, I, I think I, I don't remember the details. So I, but they they looked at women with concussion. I can't remember if it was um, persistent symptoms and how long the symptoms had been present for but they prescribed them an oral contraceptive um, after the concussion. But, and, and the effect was not significant, but they didn't look at um, baseline hormone levels or you know, when during the cycle the injury occurred. And so it's, it, maybe it's helpful, but I think we don't know enough about all these different pieces to answer that question even yet well and let's be real there's symptoms associated with pms like katie said and then there's even more symptoms associated with birth control in the u.s they found a male birth control pill and it didn't make it past the first or second stage of fda approval because the men had like three side effects and like you know god forbid the dudes had a headache or something like that right (laughs) so so it didn't make it into the next round and so I feel like that would be so convoluted. I mean, how yeah. would you even begin to, to study something like that? Like, yeah. how would you even begin to isolate variables? The other interesting piece is, too, if women are using an IUD, um, that is something like you can't always track the cycle um, the same way. And so that's where it's like literally just start journaling it <laughs> and see when <laughs> things occur. And if it's on a certain you know space of days, and maybe we can track that. Um, yeah. I was looking at a study, I don't know if it's the same one, Megan, but uh, it's the Gallagher study from 2018. I, I don't know if it's the same one, but they did see that there was later. A, the difference in symptom severity between uh, women who were taking an oral contraceptive versus not. Um, the women who were taking it had a lower symptom severity um, than hmm. the non, uh, like not using birth control. So there maybe is a, like I said, a stabilizing or maybe like just a regulatory effect of that um where it maybe doesn't quite reduce as low potentially um and that's maybe that but then again we're just kind of pulling like there's just so little research on this that I think it's we're just kind of cracking the egg a little bit like barely (laughs) getting into it so um like I even know there's studies that are looking at just strength uh training and hormonal cycles and that's just starting so this is like completely new on a lot of fronts does it say what the age range was of the people in that study uh it's collegiate it's collegiate ages so i'm assuming kind of like 18 to 24 ish it doesn't give me a uh yeah it was like 40 males 50 females so um really interesting too because um you know, young girls who are taking birth control are usually doing so because they're trying to stabilize their menstrual cycle in general. And so it'd be really interesting to see that population versus other populations because they're already having hormonal, you know, a 14-year-old girl, we could say generally, maybe not always, but a 14-year-old girl on birth control probably is taking it for medical reasons as opposed to contraceptive reasons. And so it would be, it would be really interesting to see what their hormonal state is like versus a kid who doesn't need the medication to regulate them properly. 
A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then if we were to talk about biomechanics, because I know that there was a study, and I, I'm the worst at remembering details. So uh, there was a study talking about neck strength, and I believe it was for every one pound of force, it was a 6% reduction in concussion risk. And then the biomechanics of women typically having longer, leaner necks. Um, so is there any information that you guys would like to talk about as, as related to our necks? Maybe there's a benefit to women strengthening their necks. Um, m- maybe they've now proven that there's no correlation. Uh, but I feel like that falls under that biomechanics aspect of things. Yeah, it definitely does. I think for a while the research was pretty mixed. But um, I, from what I've seen, it's starting to starting to tip a little bit toward maybe it might matter. What do you, have you seen anything, Katie? Um, I haven't looked particularly into neck strength stuff um, related to like, because I've been so focused on like vestibular ocular and everything right now, but um, it it makes sense to me just uh, from like a clinician perspective, because you start to think of when younger girls in competitive sport, like start really training um, and thinking about particularly that kind of strengthening, uh, it, it seems to be like, I, I, I always think, like, like, again, it's maybe a social cultural kind of thing, but girls seem to start training a little bit later um, and really getting to heavier weights and like really pushing resistance training. Um, and so I wonder if that's maybe a factor is like if there's a preventative sort of method in there for like that could support the idea that we should be working on strengthening and like heavier weight and putting more load and not being worried about it, doing it at a younger age, because more and more is that coming out that it's okay to do that, um, you know, under sort of following periodization and things. But I feel like the younger girls are not encouraged to lift 
heavier weights. <laughs> yeah. This is just a personal subjective thing, but um, I think that I think it's fairly accurate. <laughs> I, I think yeah. that there's something to be said is that uh, the boys teams tend to push that a little bit more um, because, you know, there's more over contact in those sports and women's sports tend to be non-contact. However, I've been working women's sports for over a decade and I know for a fact that it's not non-contact. Um, and I think there's something to be said of doing it before they get to their collegiate sports age, because um, a lot of women, I think, don't start really hitting that kind of weight until then. And then, you know, through high school, like, I don't remember even really lifting weights in high school. Like, and I was playing competitive soccer and, you know, heading a soccer ball from a goalie kick at center field. Like, I didn't know any better then, but you think of how much neck strength that requires. Um, I sort of begin to question those things just uh, subjectively, but. That's my two cents. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that it, it, it seems like there's a lot of cultural, social aspects, right? Like girls are kind of primed to talk more about their symptoms. Boys are told to stuff it down and ignore it. Uh, girls are told to be more careful and, you know, explain yourself more. How often does a girl say sorry when she has nothing to be sorry for? Or they want to answer your questions the way you want to hear them. They're looking to please you almost versus boys aren't they don't have that as ingrained. I think maybe that might be changing throughout these younger generations, but it, but it seems to still even be, you know, in my mid thirties, like the boys are, are very different. Their mentality is very different. And a lot of times for girls, they don't want to get bulky. They don't want to, um, you know, I remember when I was working with professional athletes, some of them would model in the off season. So you're jumping off an 80 foot jump the same entrance as the boys are and the boys are training all season um, and the girls are worried about, you know, what's it going to do to my muscle mass. Um, and so I, I think that there would have to be some sort of cultural shift. The more and more aggressive girls sports get, um, we really want to think about this differently. And, and I think that we could even just look to ACL prevention. I mean, back in the day, it was, it was almost a, a discredit to girls that you were more likely to tear your ACL. And now it's just a fact. And you do a pre-training, you know, you keep up your glute med strength, keep up your reaction time, keep up your balance, and then your risk factors get a little bit lower. And so I wonder if that's what will happen um, in the world of concussion. We isolate some biomechanical factors. We create some preseason training. And then the girls' risks drop a little bit um, while we wait for society pressures to catch up. Yeah, I, I, I hope so. I think um, we, it, 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 like in ACL, uh, incidents of ACL tears, the fact, that, you know, it's not, a, it's not an indication that women are weaker or they're less adapted to doing any of these things. It's, it's that we, uh, as a medical community, have not yet acknowledged that women are not just like smaller men. There's, there's a whole bunch of differences that... Um, we need to take into account in all kinds of areas. And, and um, jumping off what Katie said about, you know, women's sports not being non-contact, um, it's possible that that has something to do with this. Like, the, do, we, do we teach women to uh, hit and take hits the same way as we teach boys because the sport is supposed to be non-contact? And if contact occurs in women's sport, is it just incidental and therefore less expected and therefore you're less um, prepared for it? Like, those are all questions we don't, we don't have answers to, but um, I, I'm, I think we're starting to acknowledge that no, women's sport is not non-contact. It's the, the contact is different. 
and it's often vicious. I got to tell you, if you've ever worked a, a women's soccer match, at least in the U.S., it's among one of the most vicious things you could ever watch. I agree. <laughs> a lot 100%. of hair pulling, a lot, of, a lot of whiplash injuries from ripping someone's ponytail backwards. <laughs> Um, I also think it's important. I liked what you said. We're not just smaller men, but that doesn't mean that we're, we're weaker. So what I never want to have come out of all this, like women are more prone, women have slower recovery, is that women aren't, um, it, it's not that we're, it's not that we're weaker. It's not that we're, we're more prone to injury because we are less than. It's not that girls shouldn't play sports because they have a higher risk. And it's not that men who have prolonged symptoms are weak or womanly, or there's something wrong with them either. Right. And so it's just that we're, we're different creatures and we, and we serve, um, similar, but different purposes on, on the planet and, and at some bio, <laughs> at some biological level. And so we just have to be treated um, fairly but differently to keep us all active and healthy and doing all the things that we want to do. But but again, um, and this would be the, the feminist in me as well, is that men aren't, uh, you know, just because you're a guy who has long-term symptoms doesn't mean there's something wrong with you because it can be long-term recovery, men or women. And like I said, in my clinic, I'm seeing 42% rate of men. There's not something wrong with all the men that live in this area. Um, and so we want to focus on the girls and why they're different so that the girls get equal attention at the table. But we also don't want to take away from the people who are struggling and make them feel um, badly about what's going on with them as well. The analogy that I often use is um, with like heart disease, because uh, and this is way out of my area of expertise. So I, I don't know if it's still true, but uh, for a long, long time, women were more likely to die of heart attacks because the way that women report heart attack symptoms is different than the way that men do. And all the research was done in men. So the, the uh, heart attacks were in women were getting missed. And it's not <laughs> that they were having more or they were more severe or it was just that the medical model was built around the male experience. And it, it's true not just in heart disease. Um, so no, it doesn't mean that men are doing anything wrong. It just means that we as healthcare practitioners need to expand how we deal like it's it's more something that the healthcare system needs to deal with it's not a, a failing of of our patients at all yeah yeah no I think and I and that's a good oh sorry one second that's a good oh. plug for they need women's brains uh for cte studies cte we don't know anything about it so for the right now don't freak out at home but we need women's brains for studies like that because all this research is being done on male high-risk athletes like football, BMX riders, things like that. And they're all highly symptomatic people who, unfortunately, their lives usually end too soon. And it's a very small sample of the actual population. And so you can actually sign up on, um, I believe it's through Pink Concussions, or you can just go straight to the BUVA Brain Bank website, and you can actually sign a form. So whether or not you've had a lot of concussions, whether or not you're still symptomatic from an old concussion, you can actually pledge your brain um, to science after you die. And there's a whole protocol for how you would, you would give your brain. So the best thing that we can do, hopefully none of us are giving our brains anytime soon, but the best thing that we can do is, is pledge and encourage maybe our older relatives to participate in studies like this so that women can be accurately reflected in, in a lot of that research too, because that's where a lot of the money is going is to the, that type of research. And so we want, we want women um, reflected in that as they start to make standards and, and understand it better. And then, sorry, Katie, what were you going to say? Um, yeah, I just I wanted to 
kind of expand upon the points of talking about just biological differences and not necessarily individual um, differences and being like more subjective to the patient and, you know, be like, well, why did this happen to me? Um, Even within like, so like different levels of hormones between people versus, and a lot of the research like so far, I think that comes back to your heart disease example is it was done with testosterone first. And so they looked at males and like males have been treated for this. And some males have different levels of testosterone than others and et cetera. Um, so that the variability even amongst the biological sex themselves, not to mention between is like, I think really important to consider. And that's maybe why like, you know, if men are like, well, my testosterone levels were off and maybe like, if that's me, it's not them. It's just their genetics is <laughs> nothing really to do. It's how their biology just operates. There's nothing that they could really change per se, that, like they'd be aware of. Um, and I think that's something to make clear too, is with women, it's like, you know, with based on our hormone levels, like whether, you know, Megan mentioned pregnancy different phases of our <laughs> um, evolution through an age, um, you know, becoming pre-menopausal, like those types of things may change all of those risk factors again. So not just looking at where like the cycle is, but where is that individual? Um, and, you know, maybe there is some other things that come come to play, you know, if they've got mental health concerns that exist prior, like all we've identified all those modifiers before. Um, but no one actually looked at like biological, um, you know, down to like the actual genetics of this. And that, that I think is worth exploring, but it's going to take like obviously a very large study um, to be able to break down those different um, kind of, uh, what am I trying to say here? <laughs> Age groups and different um, progressions through, because even different women can experience those phases at different times, like the earlier, later you look at adolescent girls and them get their periods like three years before another girl will. So there's different, everybody's different even within the biological sex. And I think that's maybe where you see those differences between one female and another female and another male and another male. Um, and I think that's kind of what we're starting. Like even in this conversation, it's just kind of starting these ideas in my own head of how this should, should really be looked at. So, Yeah. Well, even um, so, if we look at something that's been researched a lot more, migraines, for instance, uh, migraines hate change. So maybe you are a prepubescent migrainer, you start your cycle, you're no longer a migrainer, you get pregnant, you become a migrainer again. And so I would think that it would have to be somewhat similar, um, given that they're, they're both to do with our brain. And we know that there's some sort of hormonal biological factor, but I mean, that's an easy one because there's been so much research. Um, so migraines change when, when you change, when you go through the different levels of your, of your life. Um, and then what would also is fascinating. So we know with the dysautonomia, uh, that there's these neuroendocrine changes that occur as well. And so then we get into this whole chicken or the egg. I mean, you've got patients who weren't premenopausal, um, or at least not symptomatically, and then they have a head injury and all of a sudden it kicks them into early menopause. And, and why does that happen? And, and how is that happening? And then it, is it that the hormones are driving the dysautonomia and the neuroendocrine changes or are the neuroendocrine changes driving uh, these hormonal changes? And so it becomes so complicated. Yeah, are you referring to like the uh, hypopituitary Function. Yeah, or, is that more so like you're referring to that because it does show that there's like secondary changes to the pituitary gland, which you think of where it is located in the brain. 
it's kind of at the root of the tree, right? So like, it's, yeah, it's exactly. one of, I always think of it as like a tree trunk and then everything kind of peripheral moving around it. Like the brain stem is the kind of the trunk and then that's kind of where all our functions sort of converge. And um, I, I think that's, again, that's such a, such a deep structure though. It's like, how do we really isolate that? Um, right, right. But it's but so I've interesting, it, you know, when a doctor pulls a blood panel and there's changes in testosterone levels after a head injury, or there's changes in some of the female hormones after um, a head injury. And so it's really interesting. Is it kicking off a cycle that was going to happen already? Or is the system just really not working as efficiently as it was before? And then, and why, why is that happening? I'm supposed to pose the questions and you're supposed to answer them. <laughs> And the listeners get to learn something. That's that's a really good question. We can get we can do a study and get back to you in two to four years. You guys go and do your very detailed studies with your blood draws, and I'll just keep doing functional studies of what I observe in the clinic and we'll all be happy. Well, uh, does anyone have any, um, like, burning things that they really want to talk about as far as girls and head injuries go? Does anyone have any, like, final pieces that we didn't cover that they want to talk about? I can't think of anything. I think we've kind of blown the hormone thing wide open. But <laughs> did, it, did it all. The most important thing you can do is stay nice and strong. Remember that it's okay for girls to lift weights. Um, for you can't change your hormones, you can't change your gender, you can't change, uh, you know, any of those extraneous factors. And so the things that you can do is you can treat your mental health if that's a problem for you. Um, you can seek help um, when it's needed. You can stay strong and active and fit, um, not just playing your sport two months out of the year and then doing nothing else and hanging out with your pals, but making sure you stay strong and fit or play a different sport, which seems to be a unique concept nowadays. But um, it, it, it used to be that we played three or four different sports a year and, and trained all these different parts of our body um, throughout the year. And so I think that for girls, just like boys, staying strong, staying fit, staying motivated, not shying away from an opportunity to play something because you're afraid um, but, but really going out there and, and doing it just the same as you would if you were a born a male. Um, so with that being said, I think it's a nice long podcast here for everyone to listen to again, as usual. So um, for, would you guys like to talk about your social media? Megan, why don't we start with you? How can people access you? Or do you want to stay anonymous like uh, Harry and Megan and just hide over there in Canada? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I am where I am on Twitter as Megan Adams PT. Um, I have a website. I teach uh, some courses and that is uh, onebrainneuroscience.com. And uh, yeah, I think that's where you find me. Twitter. Oh, Instagram uh, at onebrainneuro. That's, that's how you find me. And Katie, how do we find you? Um, on Twitter, I'm at Katie Mitch underscore ATPT. Um, and then on Instagram, I can be found at, at Thrive Neurosport. And I also have a website, thriveneurosport.ca, with some good knowledge translation stuff on there. Awesome. I was going through, I was stalking Katie on Instagram earlier today. Uh, 
<laughs> she's got some good I like the little slides with the facts over them those are I don't know how you make those you're a magician but those those are I'm still cool. learning <laughs> I, was, I, I went I went through a deep dive on your Instagram I didn't like any old posts so you wouldn't know about it though um, <laughs> and then you can uh, you can find me at LZ concussion on Twitter uh, you can find me on Instagram at Phoenix concussion recovery although primarily I just mooch off of Nick and rely on him to tag me and things. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't really go directly to my, my Instagram handle for anything, but at LZ concussion. And then of course you can um, find out more information about concussions on Phoenix concussion recovery.com. So Phoenix, like the bird or the city in Arizona, Phoenix concussion recovery.com. And we do have our return to sport program on there. So if you're looking for how to get started on some exercises, you can check that out. And um, obviously, you can always find us on concussiontalk.com, which is where Nick is so wonderful to post everything and um, shoot out all these podcasts to everybody. So uh, thank you so much, you guys, for letting me participate with you in all of your discussions. And thank you to all the listeners. And we'll be back with something else for you to chew on in the next couple weeks. Thanks so much. Thanks, guys. This has been great. Music at the beginning of this podcast is by Ben Sound, www.bensound.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.